0: Just days before Christmas in 1910, a fire broke out in Chicago that would eventually result in the highest loss of life of firefighters due to a building collapse, a grim claim held for nearly 91 years before being surpassed on 9-11. This is the story of the Chicago Stockyards Fire of 1910. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. This is not a cheerful holiday story, as you have likely surmised by now, and as it deals with fire and tragic deaths, listener discretion is advised. Longtime listener Rich Hughes suggested I do an episode about the Chicago stockyards. Here you go, Rich, and thanks for your support. Chicago is a town defined by its horrific history of fires. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 the second Great Chicago Fire of 1874, the Iroquois Theater Fire of 1903, and the tragic Our Lady of the Angels Fire of 1955. The Stockyards Fire of 1910 was a horror of its own. Around 4 a.m. on December 22nd, a night watchman at the Nelson Morris Meatpacking Company at 44th and Loomis noticed black smoke coming from the basement of Building Number 7, a six-story windowless cold storage structure. A fire likely caused by faulty electrical wiring was beginning to build. At 4.09 a.m., an alarm was triggered and was transmitted to every firehouse in the city where firemen on watch could determine whether their fire companies would be needed. The Chicago Fire Department Engine Company 59, located a few blocks east of the stockyards at 818 Exchange Avenue, was the first to arrive at the stockyards. Within the hour, more information was transmitted to Chicago firehouses signaling a 411 blaze. One responding house was Engine Company 103, based at Laughlin and Harrison Streets southwest of downtown and roughly four miles northwest of the Nelson Morris meatpacking plant. Two members of Engine Company 103 went to pick up Chief Fire Marshal James Horan at his home at 722 South Ashland. The chief's home was a five-minute drive for the men in the two-cylinder 1906 Buick that was the first and likely only motorized vehicle in use by the CFD at the time. Water wagons in 1910 were still horse-drawn. Informed of the blaze at the stockyards, Jim Hornet took an extra minute to add additional layers of clothing to help keep him warm in the 26-degree temperatures in Chicago. Jim Horn's wife, Margaret, awakened by all the commotion, asked, What's the matter, Jimmy? Chief Horan responded, Nothing, dear. It's just another fire at the yards, and said goodbye. Jim Horan was a widower when he met Margaret Mahoney, the woman who had become his second wife. Horan's first wife, Katie, had died of a heart attack at the age of 35 in 1895, leaving it to raise their two children. Fast forward in 1910, Jim and Margaret, married for seven years, had two kids of their own, a three-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. Horne's kids from his first marriage were now grown, his son, 23, and his daughter, 18. In 1906, the Chicago Tribune asked what sort of woman is best suited to be the wife of a fireman. Horan responded that the wife should be someone who doesn't worry about her mate. Quote, I've known firemen who were almost driven to distraction by their wives' habit of worrying about them. Horan went on to say he believed that, quote, a man with this sort of wife will not take even reasonable chances at a fire for fear of injuring himself. They do not fear the injury so much themselves, but they dislike contemplating its effect on their wives. The woman who can sleep when she knows her husband is on his way to a fire and that he may be buried under a falling wall is the sort that will make the ideal wives for firemen. Jim Horne joined the fire department in 1881 when he was 22, and just 12 years later, in July of 1893, he had worked his way up to chief of the 1st Battalion, the most prestigious command in the CFD. At 6'4", 250 pounds, 51 year old James Horan had battled countless fires in the city in his 29 years with the CFD. The Stockyard's fire on this cold December day in 1910 would prove to be unlike any he had witnessed before. In 1850, there were slightly more than 23 million people in the United States. Ten years later, in 1860, that number jumped to 31 and a half million, and in 1870, the U.S. population was nearly 39 million people. With this many people in need of food, meatpacking houses would become big business, especially if they were operated in a centrally located city like Chicago. Before the stockyards were built south of downtown Chicago, small stockyards could be found in various parts of the city, including one called the Bull's Head Market that opened in 1848 at Madison and Ogden. Between 1852 and 1865, five railroads were constructed in the city, which helped transport livestock and their eventual products. With the Civil War underway starting in 1861, the United States government purchased large quantities of beef and pork to feed the Union troops, and as a result, processing of hogs, increased from 392,000 in 1860 to more than 1.4 million in the winter of 1864 to 1865. Although not as much of an increase, cattle processing rose from 117,000 head to 338,000 in the same period. Seeing the potential for an even larger presence in Chicago for meatpacking, a consortium of eight packing firms and 11 railroads launched the Chicago Union Stockyard Company on Christmas Day, 1865. This new operation consolidated small stockyards scattered around the city into one large area. Within 10 years, business was booming. A Chicago Tribune article from December 1875 put the estimate of the value of the cattle, hogs, sheep, and horses received at the stockyards for sale or shipment during that year at over $100 million, nearly $5.7 billion in today's value. While it may seem strange today, the stockyards were a popular tourist draw in that same 1875 Chicago Tribune article, The writer claimed that strangers visiting Chicago would as soon leave our city without seeing the stockyards as the traveler would of visiting Egypt and not the pyramids, Rome and not the Colosseum, Pisa and not the Leaning Tower. In 1893, the same year as the World's Columbian Exposition, more than one million visitors took tours of the stockyards and packing houses. One tourist even remarked that they found the Stockyard's experience more entertaining than a ride on the World's Fair's Ferris wheel. Through the Stockyards, written by John O'Brien and published in 1907 by Rand McNally, offers a pretty fawning look at the Union stockyards, but does have a few interesting nuggets of info. At the time of the book's writing, nearly 64% of the U.S. population was located east of Chicago, while 70% of the country's livestock was west of the Second City. The author offers, quote, But for the beef and pork furnished by the corn-growing area of the Mississippi and Missouri Valleys, the East would subsist mainly on a vegetarian diet. Chicago brought together the corn-fed cattle of Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, and the grass-fed ones of Texas, the Dakotas, Wyoming, and Montana. Hogs from farms around the Corn Belt were also part of the equation, And while it was often said that Chicago packers used every part of the hog, except its squeal, that really wasn't the case. There was a lot of waste product involved with the processing of animals, waste that seeped into the floors and walls of the packing sheds. That is, if the waste wasn't discarded directly into the Chicago River, creating issues for discussion on another episode. In the book Pride in the Jungle, Community and Everyday Life in the Back of the Yard, Chicago, published in 1992, author Thomas Jablonski writes that of the dozens of slaughterhouses, fertilizer plants, tanneries, rending vats, dumps, and trash-filled alleys, the worst of the stench-producing operations was the Darling and Company Rendering Plant at 42nd and Ashland, where one could find, quote, open wagons loaded with bone bits, damaged hides, dead cats and dogs, leftover meat from the local butcher shops, and big gobs of fat collected around the main plant. In addition to the waste produced at the plants and the offensive smells, there was a problem of soot from the many stockyard brick smokestacks, which created a haze and constant layer of grime. The average worker at the stockyards, often recent immigrants with little or no training, made pennies per day while risking injury and even death long before worker reform helped offer some relief from the grueling conditions. Upton Sinclair's 1906 book, The Jungle, was a wake up call for the nation regarding the inhumane working conditions and horrible environment in the stockyards, even prompting President Theodore Roosevelt to take the steps that resulted in the Pure Food and Drug Act. Between 1889, when Chicago annexed the town of Lake where the stockyards were based, and December of 1910, the Chicago Fire Department responded to 68 extra alarm fires, nearly half of those occurring in the vicinity of the stockyards. This number does not include the numerous smaller fires that frequently require the expertise of the Chicago Fire Department. While recommendations for improvements in fire protection at the stockyards were given, many of the owners of the packing houses were not interested in making costly investments to lessen the chances for fires. They simply relied on the CFD to handle issues when they arose. According to authors John F. Hogan and Alex A. Burkholder in their excellent book, A Fire Strikes the Chicago Stockyards, A History of Flame and Folly in the Jungle, by 1910, Union Stockyards contained 300 miles of railroad tracks, 13,000 pens, 25 miles of streets, and 50 miles of sewers. While many operations at the stockyards, like the Nelson Morris & Company meatpacking business, had their own private watchmen to help stop fires, most were not well-trained and could only handle small blazes. As for members of the CFD who battled numerous blazes at the stockyards, also called Packing Town, a staff writer at the Tribune summed up the valor of the firemen with this. The men knew the treachery of the ancient shells of grease-soaked wood and shaky brick walls. They knew the danger of explosions of the liquid ammonia gas which runs through the buildings of Packingtown in a network of pipes. They knew the danger of explosion of the quantities of saltpeter, the principal constituent of gunpowder which is stored in the ancient flimsy stockyard structures for use in pickling and preserving meat. Chicago firemen cherish no illusions when they go in to strangle a big fire at the yards with their hands. One of the other significant issues in the stockyards was the lack of water and water pressure. The animals, workers, and machines use millions of gallons of water each day, something that was brought up numerous times as a potential problem for Chicago firefighters. Up until the very day of the fire in December 1910, fire officials such as Chief James Horan were pushing for more high-pressure water lines to be installed at the packing houses of the Union stockyards in case of the unthinkable. And because Chicago, the packing houses in the city could not come to terms as to who would construct the new system and who would directly benefit from the new project change would only come after this deadly day in December of 1910. While the buildings owned by the Nelson Morris Company had brick exteriors, the grease-soaked and highly flammable insides were made of wood and lacked any type of fire suppression system such as sprinklers. Chief Jim Horan arrived at the scene of the fire at approximately 4.56 a.m. What he found was scant water pressure and rail cars too close to the blaze, which gave his men little room to work or to raise their ladders, and after more than 45 minutes, hoses that had yet to reach the main part of the fire. Horan and his men attacked the fire from a precarious position, that of one squeezed between the wall of the burning building and the railroad cars. Any chance of escape would have only been possible by running south or north along the platform. At 5.08 a.m., as the fire at the Nelson Morris Company plant intensified, the walls of the warehouse, without windows to vent the building pressure from superheated air, began to bulge. The structure buckled, causing a six-foot brick wall to crash through a wooden canopy and collapse out of the nearby loading dock and onto the firemen below, who had no time to react. James Horan had only been on the scene for roughly 12 minutes before being buried under the rubble along with 20 other firemen, two watchmen, and Stephen Lean, a 16-year-old yard clerk who was posting notices on rail cars when he stopped to watch Chicago's brave firefighters in action. Joseph Mackey, one of the two men who drove Chief Horan to the fire that night, later recalled hearing, quote, a dull roar from inside the building, and then... The shed shook like a piece of paper. The walls of the building seemed to be pushed toward us. Then suddenly, the wall separated into bricks. I shouted to the men below, and at the time ran back toward the canopy. I heard the chief call, Look out, men! I looked toward him. He was lifted into the air, whirled around, then disappeared. I think he must have been killed instantly. That blast caused fire to jump to another warehouse, but the fire team still standing had one goal, to save all those buried under the scorching hot bricks and other building materials. While the men attempted to move the rubble, the heat from the bricks burned through their heavy gloves, blistering their hands. Smoke and embers continued to fill the air. Third assistant marshal Thomas O'Connor later said, quote, The firemen who rushed up to the brick pile were powerless to aid the victims. The flames that broke through the pile of bricks were so furious, and the smoke so dense, the pile could not be seen at times. Eventually, over 50 engine companies and seven hook-and-ladder companies responded to battle the conflagration. The water supply, which was already lacking at the stockyards, was made even worse when firefighters found the city's fire hydrants were shut off. To prevent freezing. Because of the collapsed walls and ruins in the stockyards, the body of Chief James Horan lay undiscovered until well into the evening when one of the searchers found his white helmet. Buoyed by the discovery and convinced Horan must be nearby, the crew dug through the rubble, finding the chief as he died, kneeling, arms folded, facing the center of the fire. According to John Drenicke of Truck 7, He was lying between the railroad track and the building, none nearer to the danger line, as he always was, in the lead. For some little time we could not pry up the overwhelming weights which held him down. More men, and yet more, rushed our help. Not a man thought of the heat. Not a fellow saw anything but the chief. Dead though we knew him to be, he was our chief, and we loved him. There were those on the edge of the building collapse with serious injuries who were hospitalized and later recovered. One who did not was Captain Alexander Lannon of Engine Company 50. He was the first to be pulled alive from the rubble but died from his injuries the next day at St. Bernard Hospital on 64th Street. Lannon was the last of the 24 fatalities that day and the only one not killed in the initial wall collapse. In addition to that of Chief James Horan, there were other heartbreaking stories about those killed in the fire. James Fitzgerald, 33, a lieutenant of Engine Company 23, was to be married that Christmas day. Edward Shonset, age 27, truckman of Truck Company 11, was killed on his birthday. A father of one, Shonset and his wife would have celebrated their third wedding anniversary on Christmas Eve. His remains were so mangled that he was not immediately identified. 34-year-old William Weber, driver of Engine 59, had just moved into his new home at 72nd and Morgan, and was looking forward to spending Christmas with his wife and three children. To be home with his family on Christmas Day, 41-year-old Lieutenant Herman Brandenburg of Truck 11 traded his days off with another man. Nicholas Doyle, a truckman of Truck Company Number 11, was killed, as was his father, Dennis Doyle, captain of Engine Company 39. The elder Doyle was the last to be taken out of the rubble. Thousands of family members, friends, and neighbors from nearby communities came to watch and pray. Mayor Fred Bussey received word of the tragedy as he was returning from visiting a friend in Kansas. Arriving in Chicago... He was brought to the recovery site to hear the awful news that his childhood friend, Jim Horan, had been killed. The mayor commented, quote, It was an awful catastrophe. I'm simply heartbroken over it. Jim Horan and I had known each other since he was a boy five years old, and no man did I admire more than him. He was a firefighter through and through, and a man that was a man. After watching the fire for two hours, Bussie left the stockyards to console Jim Horan's wife, Margaret, and their two children, returning to the stockyards after. Charles Comiskey, owner of the Chicago White Sox, was reportedly so grief-stricken upon hearing of Chief Horan's death, he could barely speak. All my life I've known him, the baseball team owner said. Ever since I can remember anything about the fire department, it seems as if I've known Jim Horan. Next to firefighting, he loved baseball, and he was one of the best friends the game or men in it ever had. Struggling against breaking down, Comiskey continued, He was the most fearless man I ever knew and the squarest as well as the bravest. To me, it is like losing a member of my own family, but my loss is nothing compared to what the city of Chicago lost when he went to his death. Altogether, it took more than 17 hours to pull the 23 bodies buried in the rubble. Many of the firefighters who fought that day were from the neighborhood, and the fire that took their lives left 19 widows and 35 orphan children just two days before Christmas. There were numerous benefits held after the fire to raise money to help those affected by the tragedy. One of the more touching stories I read was that of an eight-year-old girl named Catherine Rice who walked into the relief headquarters with a box containing $2.71 in pennies. Young Catherine had lost her own mother five weeks before and was so saddened by the loss of the firefighters, she performed a show with her dolls for neighbors charging a penny for admission. All her proceeds went toward the benefit of the widows and orphans. A few months after the horrific fire in December 1910, efforts to improve the high-pressure water system at the Union Stockyards finally began. While it was not the first, the fire of 1910 that claimed the lives of 21 firefighters and three civilians would not be the last at the stockyards... Slightly more than one year later, the six-story brick transit house hotel and restaurant at the stockyard burned to the ground on January 5, 1912. In May of 1934, another significant fire broke out at the stockyards. By the time it was brought under control more than four hours after being detected, nearly 90 percent of the stockyards, approximately 80 acres of land, had burned. That fire cost $6 million in damage, close to $140 million in today's value, and resulted in the death of one employee and 8,000 cattle. With advances in refrigerated rail cars, interstate transportation, and other national and regional distribution, the need for Chicago stockyards diminished after World War II. Companies like Swift and Armor closed their plants in the 1950s, and others soon followed. The Union Stockyards remained in operation for 106 years, finally shutting down at midnight on Friday, July 30th, 1971. The area is now primarily industrial. The Union Stockyard gate, the entryway to the stockyards at Exchange Avenue and Peoria Street, was designated a Chicago landmark in February of 1972, and a National Historic Landmark in May of 1981. Behind the Gate is a bronze and aluminum sculpture by artist Tom Scharf, which was installed in 2004. It memorializes Jim Horan and the 20 other members of the Chicago Fire Department who died on December 22, 1910. That monument sits on a granite base with the names of 530 Chicago firefighters who died in the line of duty. In an eerie coincidence, a century later to the day on December twenty second, 2010, two Chicago firefighters were killed and 16 injured after a wall and roof collapsed as those brave men fought a fire at 1744 East 75th Street. As of this writing, in December 2023, there have been four in the line of duty deaths in four separate fires this year alone, believed to be the most in a quarter century of the Chicago Fire Department working to keep Chicagoans safe. listening to today's episode about the Chicago Stockyards Fire of 1910. This episode was researched, written, and recorded by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for an episode of the Chicago History Podcast, send me an email at Chicago Pod at gmail.com. There are links in the show's notes to books, documentaries, and other materials if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics discussed. Anything you buy through those links, not just this stuff, may earn the podcast a small commission at no additional cost to you. Thanks as always to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angelizeartjks at gmail.com. If you would, please take a moment and like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and tell a friend about it. It helps me get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible, learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe.